I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Is hair a material? Are biscuits a material? Are crystals a material? Is plastic a material? Is porridge a material? Can gases be a material? Are eggs a material? Is water a material? What do you call everything that isn't a material? <laughs> Sorry, I didn't mean to laugh at you. And yet you continue to do so. <laughs> Hello and welcome back to Real Talk. This is the podcast that brings me, a nerdy and clueless material scientist, into conversation with people who actually know what they're talking about when it comes to materials. I'm your host, Anna Pajajski, and this time I'm joined by artist and embroiderer Richard McVettis to talk about cotton. I started by asking Richard about how he came to work with this ancient, ubiquitous and somewhat loaded material. A little bit about me. I grew up in South Africa, um, came back to the UK in 93, didn't really have any sort of creative energy at all, was very academic, and then all of a sudden got exposed to this kind of art world. And um, yeah, and then my sort of love for art started then. Um, went to uh, Manchester Metropolitan and strangely did a whole degree in embroidery. And yeah, there I was really challenged about what embroidery really meant, a great kind of medium for self-expression, um, the intimacy and the mundaneness of like hand stitch was totally thrilling to me. Um, had a had a year out um, just to work in retail and relax and then and then went on to the Royal College of Art and studied an MA in, in constructed textiles. Um, and then since then, yeah, I've been stitching my stitching my own little world since then. What do you study when you study embroidery? You learn all the rules first. So the first year of embroidery is all about machine stitch as well, but also hand stitch, the history of embroidery. You get a really good grounding in technical skills first. So that's your first year. Second year, um, you explore a little bit of your own personal voice. So you find, start to find your identity, your aesthetic. And then the third year is all about just, yeah, you and yourself and your materials and, and who you want to be in terms of the stitch that you create. And in the second year, I went to Norway and I had to weave. So, you know, I, I explored the full spectrum of textiles. You said that you sort of fell into art. Was it a time or a place or a person that introduced you to it? My favourite thing to do is drawing. So, you know, stitch became that extension of drawing. So a black pen for me was the most exciting tool to have. So I would draw kind of like these fantastical worlds in the back of my school books, like futuristic cities with just a black line and a black dot. 
and um, you know create my own little world. So really, that's where it kind of started. And then when I went to when I did GCSE Design Technology, they teach you how to render, you know, objects that to look like leather, to look like certain materials. And so that's when I started to really look at the detail around the materials and the and the objects that kind of surround us in our world. Yeah. So this is a, a materials podcast. We've just chatted a bit about materials. Um, what materials do you work with then in your work? So the main material um, that I kind of fell in love with has been wool as my base fabric. So that's the that's the fabric I embroider. And then the how I embroider or embellish is I use cotton. And I use lots of other materials as well, horse hair, you know, synthetic materials like that. But really, it's been mainly about combining wool and cotton. And I went through a whole process of finding the materials that suited what I wanted to do so you have to go through a kind of a journey of trying lots of different fabrics lots of different threads and then finally you're able to resolve the ones that really give you the characteristics that you want so yeah wool and cotton have been my mainstay since yeah probably over 10 years I've been using the same ground fabric um, for about 10 years different themes in my work but the fabric hasn't changed at all, yeah. Okay, so yeah. what are the materials properties then that you're looking for when you're looking to select new cottons or new wools? So with cotton, it's been about the quality of the line. So I've tried every type of black cotton around. So to try and get the... Th- it's about the thickness of the line and the quality and how that interacts with the wool. So the wool is... It has to be the right thickness um, because it needs a, a kind of support and tension in it. I don't use a hoop very often. So it means that, and, I, and because I stitch very small, it needs to have a lot of strength in it so it doesn't fall apart. So I use a woven wool and it's been washed and um, it's slightly felted so it doesn't fray, it doesn't do anything. So it means that I can stitch incredibly small without destroying the fabric um, of the wool at all. Yeah. And this is hand stitching? This is hand stitching, yeah, solely hand stitching, yeah. I, the process for me is, is, is really key to that, so the slowness of it and the rhythm. Um, but yeah, mainly I'm kind of joining and creating kind of a composite of material. So the the, two, the the wool and the cotton become one. So there's no way those stitches are ever coming back again. There would be a recycling nightmare to get apart those two materials. <laughs> yeah. How I use cotton is mainly I'm drawing. So I'm trying to capture all the detail around me that I see every day, you know, really boring, mundane things. Um, you know, it's a crazy world we live in. So for me as an artist, my job is to kind of find really great beauty and really mundane things like the pattern of a tread on a metal step on the way to work in King's Cross or you know the faded bit of wood on the outside of a building so I'm trying to capture that and really what I'm doing is I'm trying to replicate what I create with a black pen but with black thread um it's a slow process but that's something I really like like to do I'm, I'm just drawing the world that I see around me and creating all these kind of different textures and there are lots of different techniques that I use to do this so the most common one I use is seeding stitch so seeding stitch is lots of tiny dots so if you imagine if I have a hand of seeds like poppy seeds and I throw them on the floor that's exactly how small my stitching is so tiny black dots that I'm and I'm doing each stitch one at a time every single stitch is ideally the same size but they're not I like the randomness of the whole process and they're and they're tightly packed so no stitch is the same it's completely random I can never recreate that stitch ever again every single mark is different so I use a handful of very basic techniques and basic doesn't mean like you know boring basic just means they're very easy to do and I can kind of get lost in the moment with them so I use like cross stitch I mean the most popular stitch ever you know Um, I use a a combination of um, laid thread work or couching and that sort of technique dates back to you know 
prehistoric times. So the Bay Tapestry uses couching and stem stitch, back stitch, all these kind of very basic rudimentary techniques which have never haven't really changed in the, the last, I don't know, two thousand years. So I'm really interested in things on their own, but then also things that sit next to each other and creating this kind of like macroscopic and microscopic world around me. And so that's what I do when I make my cubes as well. So, you know, my next my my biggest kind of project has been about making embroidered cubes, kind of physical moments, tangible time, you know, as an object. And um, those cubes on their own are made up from little components for little seed stitches, which make a cube. And then, I, and then I make lots of cubes and they all come together to form a picture as well. So I'm very interested in multiples, in repetition and kind of like rituals around creating lots of things that are kind of the same. Yeah. Awesome. It's, it reminds me of um, this technology called Claytronics. Have you mm. heard of this? Um, have you seen Big Hero 6? No, film. no, no, oh, no. Okay, oh. there's your homework. That's my homework. Um, yeah, so so Claytronics is this idea that um, in robotics, where you have lots and lots of tiny individual robots that can all coordinate together and build up yeah. like a bigger object, so it's kind of like programmable matter. It kind of reminds me of what you're doing, like individually, all these little cubes have their own thing but then they make up yeah. a bigger picture yeah so they've all got their own little story to tell and then they add they come together to form a bigger picture and a bigger story how they interact with each other the the interplay between the space in between them and the shadows so yeah i'm, I'm very interested in looking at the macro world and also mm. the microscopic world so looking at patterns that we create from a distance from outside the planet you know when you look at light patterns so when I'm making a piece of work sometimes I use the light patterns that a city creates and so my black dots each become the light and then the white space and you get these very abstract patterns out of their context they look yeah strangely macro- microscopic they look like kind of viruses and actually it's just the way that we build our environments that we live in our cities and we can we actually look a little bit threatening the way kind of we're spreading across the planet mm. you know it's actually quite disturbing when we look at it from from that perspective so we mentioned earlier the bayer tapestry like obviously we've been doing embroidery for many many years yeah yeah do you know when when we first started when's the first evidence from us actually embroidering fabrics well i think prehistoric times like mm. yeah and so nothing has really changed and here in England we were really famous for embroidery so it was it was called Opus Anglicanum and I think 13th 14th century and and we were world renowned for this work and it was used in ecclesiastical places but also you know royalty used it and it was a sign of power embroidery was a sign of power which is really fascinating because now you know uh, embroidery has been facing a bit of a history, a bit of a dilemma in terms of, you know, its status within the craft world, but within the art world, it's seen as very domestic. Mm. But, you know, when you think about in history, people's houses were covered in embroidery. They were, you you had to be rich to be able to afford the people to make them. Mm. So they were seen as a status symbol. And now we, we're kind of, we see it as something very twee and, and kind of naff that we do at home at night. But actually, you know, back then it was, you know, a real sign of, of power and um you know a lot of people um then you know a lot of men owned the studios you know that did all the embroidery so it was men and women that worked mm. um together to create these these beautiful beautiful pieces i mean there's a bit of technology i think the sewing needle is something quite wondrous to look at i mean everyone is very up on tech at the moment and actually 
I think the sewing needle is one of the most designed and perfect tools that we've come up with in our history. And actually, that's a little bit of technology right there because it was able to transform the way we were able to make clothes. So we were start, we were able to make clothes from animal skins and furs, and we were able to kind of travel the world. You know, it dates 14,000 years ago. We started to make clothes, and the, the first sewing needle was made from a piece of bone. So that as a piece of technology hasn't really evolved so much because it's, it was already doing something perfect. How do you refine that as an object and as a piece of tech already? It's just the same as a pencil. You know, that's a bit of technology when that was first developed. So, yeah, I'm using tech every day in my, my life. It's quite, an, it's quite an analog piece of technology, but it's still a bit of tech. Amazing. Yeah, so I guess so. if the first needles were made of bone... These days, is it stainless steel? Like think, a sort of yeah, just steel. Steel yeah. wire. I guess in terms of us developing that technology, we would have needed like wire drawing techniques to be able to get metal that thin, which is probably quite an advanced methodology, quite an advanced um, piece of materials processing. In terms of like human history, that, that allowed us to become nomads. We were able to go to cold parts of the world because we were able to make clothes, make mm. shoes. So that... You know, that's got a real key in our development um, in terms of human history. I think that for me is like exciting. I've got goosebumps just thinking about <laughs> it because I think that I'm still using that tool today to kind of, make, you know, um, show my world that I live in. Yeah. yeah. And then later on, being able to make the sails of ships and yeah, everything. You know, go across yeah. and explore probably owes quite a lot to, to textile technology. Textiles for me is very important because it's the first material that we touch you know, mm. when we come out of the womb, you know, it's the first thing we're wrapped in. And yeah, I think quite possibly we take it for granted. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, there's so much, you know, fast, so pro- fast fashion. Yeah, and- it's prolific. It's part of our everyday life and yeah. stuff like that. But actually, we need to kind of maybe respect a little bit more. Mm. Is there a reason that you use sort of organic cotton and wool compared to synthetic fibres? Yeah, I mean, it's mainly because I'm quite conscious that um, I want to use good materials but also there's something about the characteristic of it i Mm. I like the idea that it's they act very differently um and they combine like really beautifully and the the very nature of my work is very slow so i don't make lots of work you know i'm not into fast embroidery or fast Mm. work or anything like that so everything for me is about slowness it's about yeah taking your time and not overproducing and yeah you must be very patient I am patient for certain things. Like if you ask me to knit, I, I have no patience for knitting, <laughs> but patience for embroidery, patience for really like mundane things like painting a wall or sanding a piece of wood, you know, something very analogue and something very, with my hands and then mm. I can do it. But knitting requires for me a little bit too much counting. Okay. Whereas I never count when I embroider. I can, it's very tacit, you know, it's kind of in my hand I remember how to do certain techniques so I don't really need to think about it at all you know I've done my 10,000 hours that's that's the amount of time that you're supposed to do before you become this expert and I think I've definitely done um yeah more than that in the past 10 years yeah nice so when you're embroidering then um how long would it take to build up an image or to to finish a piece of work this is something that always uh, everyone always asks you when you make Mm. embroidery because it is so time your time is kind of embedded in the in in the process. You know, you can visually see time as this kind of form. Um, so a six centimeter sort of square on a piece of fabric at my scale of stitching would take maybe twenty hours. Wow. Yeah, so a long time. So a cube that I make is like a full time job, forty hours, possibly a week, mm-hmm. to do one object. And um, 
it's kind of like conflicting at the same time as much as I love the slowness of it. Also, when you have a deadline, it's actually quite harrowing. So sure. I go through this kind of like um, process with my own mental state, you know, that I need to, I love the slowness, but yeah, I need to create the work quicker. So, um, but, and I actually embroidery, everyone thinks it's very um, soft and domestic and actually sometimes it can be quite physical in terms of your hands and your posture and your back. And I did a project a few years ago where I stitched 60 cubes and um, each cube um, I, I um, stitched for an hour, but then in increments. So the first cube was one hour of stitching, two hours of stitching, three hours, all the way up to 60. So the final cube, 60 hours of stitching. Wow. And that I had to do that over a space of um, six months over 2,000 hours of, of embroidering the same stitch, the seeding stitch. Wow. And um, by the end of that process, I was a mess. Because so, <laughs> yeah, it actually is it's a bit of a marathon to concentrate for eight hours or nine hours to stitch. And actually it takes a lot of mental discipline to keep focused because mm. your mind immediately starts to wonder. And, and your perception of time during that process like changes. Mm. So some days will go really quick and then other days an hour will feel like 10 hours. So yeah, there's a real kind of like conflict and dialogue in your head that you're going through when you're making. Mm. Um, so it's a bit of a trauma sometimes. And psychologically, it must be difficult to keep increasing the time period. Yeah. Like if you just started at 60 and then done 59, 58. Yeah. That would have been like... That would have been much better. <laughs> I think. Nicer. I think so, yeah. And I think... Yeah, it but it would, would be different, been, wouldn't it? Because I don't know, it would it would have created a very different piece of work, I think. I think so as well, because I think the first cube, what I realised when I was making the piece of work was that when I got to the last cube, it didn't have as much stitch mark making on the surface than I imagined it would have. But that's because I was so physically and mentally exhausted by the end of it that actually it didn't matter about the length of time I spent sewing it didn't um it didn't mean that i would have more stitching or kind of more more mark making on the cube actually it was there were so many other factors affecting the rate at which i was stitching so cube 50 had more stitching on than cube 60 oh really yeah so and some days you would get i would feel sad or i would feel happy or i was hungry or it was cold in the studio or i was tired and so all these sort of things manifest themselves in each of the cubes. Mm. So they become these kind of visual diaries, these little maps of time. And I can tell you how I felt on probably on all of the all of the objects. Yeah, so, I was gonna I was gonna ask, did you record any of that or it's just in your I head? recorded the diary. So I had a diary for for the yeah. whole process and I recorded the time for each piece. And then I made a, a film after about the whole process just as a kind of therapy for myself. Because it was like, it was kind of felt a little bit religious because every day I would be doing this mantra, you know, of in and out sewing. So it's just this kind of very rhythmic um, sewing. So I was using seeding stitch. So an easy process on a cube, um, using that cube as a kind of like format to allow creativity. Um, yeah. so, so I didn't have to think or it was just about the action. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Can we see these cubes anywhere Mm. of the film? Yeah, the cubes were just at the Design Museum. So they were part of the the Webby Craft Prize, and um, I'm hoping they'll 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 come back to life somewhere because <laughs> they spent so long on making them. Yeah. I'm hoping that they'll they'll come back to the public realm very soon. I don't know where they are actually at the moment. They're somewhere out there, and then um, yeah, you can uh, you can watch a film on my website, and then you can see all the pictures from from that. So the whole making process, yeah, yeah the making is really like quite crucial to the whole process as well. Yeah, so it's not just about the end result, but you know, everything that's happening through the making. Yeah. Mm, yeah. So we've been talking about how embroidery is quite, tradi- or has been viewed as quite a traditional craft. Where are the areas now in the technology? Like, is embroidery crossing over with tech in terms of, like, new hardware, new ways of thinking? Yeah, I think um, uh, the Crafts Council were doing a project, uh, Parallel Practices, where they were used, they were working with, you know, craft practitioners and then they were joining with scientists and doctors and they were using and they were sharing knowledge and similarities between their processes and how they're and how their thinking kind of relates to each other. And I think one of the artists, I can't remember her name, she was using uh, embroidery to um, create kind of like biometric circuits and sensors. So they were embroidering, you know, conductive circuits through thread and so I think there's like potential and and I think in the future with textiles anyway there's going to be like interface technology within fabrics and and I think yeah there's a lot of stuff the potential for textiles in general I think for architecture and and structures and and also within car industries I mean textiles is everywhere it's prolific Mm. it's part of our everyday society and I think yeah there's lots of things that you can learn through very mundane things like embroidery that, that can can kind of cross pollinate into other areas. There was another example as well where a surgeon met with someone who was embroidering as well, and they were sharing their practices. So a surgeon learns how to, has to be a very good stitcher, yeah. and so they were sharing skills and techniques and tips. And I think that's a great parallel between their roles as well. I think it's a really beautiful kind of synergy between two completely different practices, and yet they're, they're striving to achieve the same thing. So with a, with the surgeon, his job was to suture that skin up so there was no scar left. And, um, yeah, I think it's a fascinating uh, video. So I think that's on the Crafts Council Oh, I'll have to check that website, out. Yeah. yeah. So they that's... just have a very candid sort of conversation about their work. Yeah, amazing. Um, and where does the future lie for your work? What's next? Yeah, I mean, so that that project really dealt with time, and um, time is this sort of very abstract thing, and I think it's very 
it's kind of our way of trying to understand the world. You know, time measures change, but actually, do, and so I've been really interested in about time. Does time actually exist? So I've been very, I've been delving deep into the books of like Harla Ravelli and Stephen Hawking and asking about whether time really does exist. So it's it's pulled me from my level of looking at time and down to the kind of quantum level. Mm. So I'm very interested in, um, I know this is really weird, like embroidery and quantum physics. So I'm very interested in using embroidery to explore what's going down at this sort of quantum level, like entropy and things. And how about the random nature of like atoms and particles? So for me, that's my next process. Like how can I make sense of time at a, like a quantum level using something very unpretentious and mundane as 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 seed stitch that's incredible string theory string theory you know I've, I've got i think a great example of entropy is like i take my beautiful spool of cotton which is very ordered mm. and then i'm doing my seeding stitch and i'm transferring it in this mechanical way and transfer of heat and energy into the fabric into kind of this disorder so mm. there i'm kind of representing the world that we're living in right now you know this kind of entropy increases with time and so I'm just like showing this process through making so that's my that's my next it kind of blows my mind when I think about it I don't know if anyone else thinks about this stuff on a daily (laughs) daily daily practice but yeah it's the things that kind of excite me at the moment yeah yeah definitely I I had to learn about quantum mechanics at university and it continually blew my mind yeah things like quantum tunneling like stuff being able to jump through time and space yeah exactly I'm really interested in the idea of so at the moment I'm embroidering I can see the surface the embroidery so I know where it is but where does it go on the back of it and so that reminds me a little bit like quantum physics you know the atom appears and then it disappears and actually it's strange that our whole world is built around probability Mm. you know we don't actually know where that atom is we just have a set of suggestions that it might fall somewhere and so I'm interested in revealing my cube expanding the cube and showing the paths that this kind of stitch might take in between where it resurfaces on the fabric. So I'm really interested in what's going, uh, you know, on beyond the surface of the fabric to reveal, yeah. yeah, just to kind of reveal what's going on. I think I think that's probably how a lot of scientists think. They kind of imagine this very abstract. I can't remember who the scientist was who thought about the first kind of particles kind of disappearing. He was watching a guy walking between some lampposts and then in between the shafts of light, the guy would disappear and then reappear. And then that's the first time he was able to visualize what was going on at a very quantum level mm. so i've been yeah i've been reading a lot of stuff on um yeah time but not time as we know it yeah know? people often talk about like the fabric of space time right yeah so, so i'm that... literally embroidering yeah. it and as soon as i heard fabric i was like okay so i've got space and i've got time and they form together to yeah. form like our field that we live in mm-hmm. and so for me that's a great sort of analogy and metaphor for the work that i'm doing yeah, it's yeah. super interesting. And like the front and the back of the fabric as well reminds me of sort of like matter and antimatter. Yeah. And, and the, how... there's always like an equal and opposite to, to sort of everything. Yeah. So, you know, as something hits something, it creates something else. There's an equal, a positive and a negative. And actually the back of my stitching is a whole different world completely. So I'm very tidy and it's it's kind of ordered on the front, but the back of it reveals a whole world of complexity, which actually we don't know a lot of about right now and I think that kind of reveals a lot about science that we don't know definitely and also like that's quite relatable as well isn't it like we're all ordered and orderly on the outside yeah <laughs> and, and then we a... look in our drawers and then it's a mess 
Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, my house is very tidy. Just don't look in any cupboards or any drawers. <laughs> yeah, on the surface, I'm like calm and collected, but beneath the water, yeah, the feet, <laughs> the feet are flapping. And I think it's a great sort of analogy for yeah, life. As a as a materialsy person, I'm interested in like what actually is this stuff of cotton, and when you receive it on your cotton reel, like that's not how it first <laughs> came yeah. to be. It doesn't grow on plants in like nice spools of different colours. <laughs> no, it goes through a very complicated process. Yeah. yeah. So where does cotton come from? How do we how do we process it? So I might read a few things for you. Um, so cotton, yeah, is grown. So it's from a plant. So it's a cellulose, and actually cellulose is like, I think it's the most common sort of plant or uh, material ubiquitous sort of material in the world so it's a fluffy sort of white ball that grows on the head of the 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 plant there's little seeds in it and the and the wool cotton is used to kind of disperse the the seeds even more and so that's picked so the wool cotton is picked off the of the plant and then that goes through a very long process of removing the seeds from the cotton and then you have to comb it and clean it and then you have to start kind of like building the fibres so you have to kind of straighten all the fibres together through combing and um, you have um, I think they invented a machine called the Riddler I think I need to you might need to check that mm-hmm. hello this is Anna from the future here with some googling we realised that the machine which separates cotton fibres from seeds is actually called a ginning machine yep ginning as in gin Nothing to do with lemon slices or sobbing to your mates at 2am and telling them how much you love them, apparently. And that was a that was a kind of a big technical innovation in terms of removing the seeds from the cotton because before you had to remove it with your hands and so that was very labour intensive. Um, and then it goes through a process of so cleaning and combing um, and then the fibre is twisted um, to form like roving and so these rovings then form kind of um thread and then and then these these threads are then twisted together to form the cotton and then i think it's kind of burnt a little bit and i'm going to read something out here for mercerized by immersion in caustic soda so yeah it's quite a process to 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 get to the cotton and then obviously it's not in the color that you want and then each of those cotton spools is then dyed Mm -hmm. um chemically to to get it to the color that you want so i think the yeah, from field to factory is a, is a to to the to the embroidery department is a very long process. You mentioned that you studied in Manchester. Apparently, during the Industrial Revolution, Manchester got the nickname Cottonopolis um, due to its role as like a global centre of cotton. So I think it was not only importing the raw material and spinning it into fibres and then weaving that into fabrics, yeah. um, but sort of producing the the clothing and the actual products themselves and the really interesting thing about um how britain became this sort of center of production is that um india was making a lot of fabric um calico and they were importing it to um, britain through the east east india company and um what happened is that really affected industry here so parliament enacted the calico act which banned um, calico fabric from being imported. And so really what happened is you were able to um, import the raw material to make the fabric, but you weren't allowed to import the fabric. And so therefore it really drove technology and industry in this country where we had to start making our own fabric. And so with the advent of the, you know, the, um, the looms and spinning, that really kind of pushed kind of the industrial revolution on this kind of like high speed railway mm. to to where we are now so all those sort of like small well quite big acts really affected the development of this country so you mentioned that actually picking the cotton off 
is a very labour intensive process and removing yeah. all the seeds and stuff. Apparently, it wasn't until the 1950s that actually a reliable mechanical cotton harvesting machine yeah. got developed. So um, a lot of cotton picking happens in the Americas. And obviously, before emancipation, it was done by slaves, mostly. But after that time, it was done by generally sort of the working classes of the Americas. And um, the the school like holidays was timed around the cotton picking season. Wow. So all the kids would like go out into the fields and like spend their summers picking cotton. But it's a loaded sort of material, isn't it? Mm. I mean, yeah, the amount of history around just that one type of material is like to- completely fascinating. Yeah, yeah massively. Yeah. And I think, again, we just we go into the shops and we see it all kind of racked up and actually we don't fully appreciate the journey that that's been on through time, but also through the way it's being made. Yeah. And as with as with any sort of raw material that comes from nature, there's always a risk that some horrible disease is going to wipe it out and we're going to be left naked <laughs> and covered Which in like in this spandex heat, actually <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be that bad this is true it sounds cool but cotton is good for heat it's the, probably the nicest material to wear and heat. yeah cotton and linen yeah yeah this is true but so to to sort of combat the risk of kind of a biological wipeout of cotton genetic scientists have been looking at how they can genetically modify cotton to have fewer seeds to make it easier to process but also scientists genetically modified cotton so that it could be a natural pesticide so they spliced the genetic coding from a bacteria that was poisonous to lots of different like aphids and stuff um spliced it into that cotton genome to make the actual cotton plant bad for the animals to eat. Wow. So it actually had its own natural insecticide in wow. its own plant tissue, which is amazing. Yeah, totally. So if people have enjoyed hearing the podcast and they want to see more of your work or to get involved and try embroidery themselves, where can they find your work and how can they get involved? So, um, yeah, you can head to my website, of course, so www.richardmcvettis.co.uk. And then, um, yeah, you can look at um, my sort of workshops and teaching site and you can come and join and have a go at stitching because not not too many people know how to sew nowadays. So it's really important to understand it, but not just even just for making something, just to, you know, have a play around with the material. I think it's really exciting to see the creative potential in something very, yeah, very unpretentious. Yeah, awesome. Well, thank you for coming on the podcast. No, thank you. It's been really fun. So that was Richard McVettis. Thanks so much to him for coming on the show. Now to the questions. This episode marks the start of our mini-series on recycling. And to kick us off, we've had quite a lot of questions about recycling paper. Firstly, Keris Bradley asks, can you recycle paper straws? And Katie Cooper on Twitter asks, can you recycle post-it notes? Or does the sticky part of it mean that you can't? Well, paper recycling involves mechanically shredding paper and mulching it up with water to tease apart the cellulose fibres that make up the paper. This makes a pulp from which we can make new paper. They also use chemicals to remove the ink on paper so that recycled paper doesn't look rubbish. Oil is the enemy of paper recycling because it gets in the way of the fibres being able to bond together into the new paper. So any oily or fatty residue left on paper straws will render them unrecyclable. This also answers Sarah Jones's question, which is, OMG, can you confirm that pizza boxes need to go in the bin? The answer is, if they have grease on them, then yes, they do need to go in the bin. In the de-inking process of paper recycling, the other non-oily stuff that gets on paper, like adhesive on post-it notes, gets removed. So yes, post-its are recyclable. 
So that brings us to the end of another episode. Please send in your questions to us about recycling. We'd absolutely love to hear from you. You can catch us on Twitter at Real Talk, that's R-I-A-L Talk, or email us at realtalkpodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget to rate and review us in all of your favourite podcasting locations. And if you're up at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival this August, a reminder that you can catch Science Show Off at the Edinburgh Fringe all month. And I'll be there from the 4th to the 10th of August. Thanks for being with us. And as ever, you've been listening to Real Talk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more, with Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.